Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, Andrew Dewing will talk you through the current market, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice. He will also be interviewing a leader in the world of agriculture and finishing up with Farm Chat, which includes his favourite bit, where he tastes beer for free. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and his market report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Week commencing 22nd of October 2018. Uh, What should we start with today? Uh, I I know, oilseed rape. It has had a kind of nondescript week where it's come down a little bit. Uh, Old crop value for November is 322. We are friendly to oilseed rape. We have a kind of target of 330 to review and decide whether we sell a bit or not. And we think it will get there at least. So, yeah, stick with that one is our advice. The soil of bean harvest is currently back on, which could put a bit of pressure on the market in the short term. But there's a few bean cargoes looking like they're going to go from the US to China, despite the trade war. The Argentinian crop has run out um, or close to it. That's kind of bullish. So, yeah, we think um, with with US soya moving across to China, underlyingly that whole oilseed market is going to stay firm. New crop, oilseed rape, currently 310 ex-farm. Again, we've said all along, we think that's a bullish market, the the various issues. One one, uh, thing on the Doing Grain Twitter page, you can find um, we've retweeted a map that Naya put out showing the damage from flea beetle. I think that's worth looking at, just just to make yourself feel really friendly to it. So currently, 310x, with with your bonuses of sort of £30-ish for a harvest price, that is actually quite a good price. So if, if there are some nervous guys out there or people who need to to hedge something then it's a very good forward deal but our advice is we think it's going to go up uh let's go on to barley next because i always talk about wheat and it's so dull um feed barley has come down a bit it's obviously influenced by the wheat price uh there's been a few cargoes traded recently which has seen well it's, it's clear that the, the surplus that's hanging around at the moment we're not particularly unfriendly to barley all the way through the year but it's just not got anything going for it especially at the moment current value november 162x farm which is a bit lower than we were yeah, I, I say I don't see much of a downside unless the whole complex moves down dramatically. New crop feed barley, from a historical perspective, 140x farm for harvest is a really good price. So with the risks of Brexit, with all of the things that we've discussed many times on the wheat crop, feed barley harvest time 140, I think maybe something should be put to bed just to put that price in there. It's definitely a profit. Malting barley, old crop is kind of a bit um, dead for the time being. It's it's not got anything new going on. There's obviously nerves about Brexit. Most of the export cargoes are, are, are getting shifted pre-March because no one knows what, what happens after then. So we are going to be quite tight in the UK for, for malting barley. There's a few casualties in terms of deliveries with nitrogens being wrong or, or, or germinations or whatever the usual ge- rejection reason is. So it's a, it's a tight stock and therefore we don't see much of a downside to it looking at new crop prices are great uh, for forward prices winter barley in the region of 165 spring barley bog standard varieties in the region of 75 175 and distilling varieties 185 those are brilliant prices forward Obviously, farmers are nervous with some of their crops being you know, rejected this year or failing, and therefore there's a, there's a nerve, nervousness about selling forward. But these are fantastically high prices. So as a starting place, I, I guess you're going to have to examine your own conscience or confidence about producing the goods. 
Feed wheat. X Farm November 168. Old crop. I mentioned last week about the technical squeeze on the market. That's still very much in play. And we think it's going to actually intensify a bit. Now, whether that pushes the spot price up or whether it just holds it is, is, a, is a question. Once the person who is short of Nov Futures, who has got to buy them in, has gone, the market, we think, will come down. So our long-term view at the moment, with all that we can see in front of us, is it's a bearish market. But you can't see anything particularly to make it go up, which means it just goes sideways or down. But then, you know, there could be this political moment, which we've mentioned so many times before. As far as the forward price... For May, you know, which is currently 175x farm, we actually think now we need to be getting some of our farmers to put some sales in the book. Until we see something to make it go up, I go back to that point, why take the risk of not selling it? And it just feels, it's a gut feeling, uh, people discuss, you know, I have a big enough gut, and it's feeling that it's going to go down a bit. So I, I just feel a bit nervous about old crop wheat prices at this point, and there's a lot of it unsold out there. As far as new crop is concerned, we have said all along the long-term view on that one is bearish. We, we were kind of saying maybe hold our breath because there's been some dry weather in, in Europe and, and Russia. Those things definitely exist, but it's going to be the winter any minute. And in the winter, the weather does winter type things. And therefore, nothing's going to shock us in terms of weather. Snow means fantastic news for any cereal crop underneath it. No snow means it might get killed with a winter kill, very cold period. We can speculate on that when it's happening. I think that the prices are beginning to to creak a bit, uh, especially because the rain that occurred last weekend has made the crops suddenly emerge and everyone goes, oh, I've got a crop to sell. And there's definitely been a reaction from farmers inquiring. And because the market's drifting down a little bit, there is a tendency to go, oh, I'll wait till it comes back up again. Well, Well, just you know, give yourself a little slap with some cold water and remind yourself that 155x farm for feed wheat is a fantastic price for November next year. Or if you're a harvest seller, 148x farm, which is the region it's in, is also a fantastic price. So let's just keep uh, keep our mind on how much it costs to grow, what the potential of risk on the downside is, including the political aspect of Brexit and others. Let's get some of that new crop in the book, please. I, I really, I really do feel nervous about it and I don't want anyone to turn around and say we haven't told you to sell it. That's it for this week. Uh, next week I'm not going to be here. I'm, I'm going to uh, go and do some crop inspecting in southern Portugal. I think the market report will be being done by Josh so um, hopefully he will come up with some fantastic ideas when we get to then. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. RTK Farming is the UK's leading independent supplier of RTK signal to the farming industry. With RTK delivered via radio or SIM card, RTK Farming can work with any make of GPS equipment, from aftermarket systems such as Trimble and Topcon to factory-fitted equipment. With low annual subscription costs and discounts for multiple vehicles, RTK Farming is the solution. For more information, go to RTK Farming. And now it's time for our feature. Good morning. Today I've got with me Emily Norton. Emily is a director of Savills and she is head of rural research. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. A little bit nervous about talking to someone intelligent for a change. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I'll be gentle on you, I promise. (laughs) Thank you. Um... There's, a, there's so many things that you've done and, the, and you, 
you know, you're a very driven lady looking through your blogs and various things. I would like to ask you, first of all, what are you doing now at Savills? So I started working at Savills three months ago and I have been recruited to work as their head of rural research. So the research team is collating lots of um, performance data about businesses and estates and land in the UK uh, and using that to create various interesting insights into how the industry is performing. Um, but I've come from a political background. I've spent the last uh, four years uh, working for a European politician. So uh, I've been recruited to give a bit more insight into the changing political landscape that's occurring at the moment. Um, as you know, we're entering this very momentous time for UK agriculture with the new agriculture bill, environment bill forthcoming. And so um, farming, law, all of those different backgrounds um, that, that I've come from are, are now sort of feeding into this new role. OK, the political uh, agenda at the moment is no one can predict what's going to happen by any shake. I mean, it, it, come March the 29th, we're going to be jumping into, a, into the deep end and, and seeing who can swim, aren't we? It feels like we're going to kind of see who we're left to deal with, see whether we're importing American chicken, and, and kind of see how much the consumer can dominate the, the, the government's thoughts in, in allowing different sets of rules for producing things. There is, you're right, a huge amount that's unknown. Um, and in times of uncertainty, um, a, a, any farmer would uh, tell you that there are things that you can worry about and things you can control. Uh, and so farmers can control what crop decisions they're making, what planting decisions they're making, uh, who they're working with in their supply chains, who their customers are, um, where the end uh, user is for what they're growing. And, and through doing those things, that there are some fairly concrete steps that they can take to mitigate uh, the uncertainty. Well, I, I think that's the point. I think the future, as we see the future, we, we, we as th this podcast is trying to give farmers ideas, confidence to be able to see a different way forward, not just be takers of price, be takers of of, oh my goodness, wheat's going to go down in value, but we better grow wheat again. The, the dynamic is about management. It's not about physically doing the job. Yeah, less people physically farming. There'll be lots of very big machines. There'll be lots of very big, uh, you know, units that are trading as, as, as one. But the management of that has to be intelligent. Look, that, I, I take that, your point. That, as, 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 the, as the industry becomes less focused on, on the physical and, and more focused on um, the management, and actually the way the system at the moment incentivizes farms to be run perhaps um, uh, tends towards quite a, a, a blunt approach. And I do think that the people who are perhaps running farm businesses um, they are solely focused on producing something that the government has told them that they should be producing mm. without even realising it. We've had 45 years of um, being driven as the, as the government, as the first purchaser, effectively, or, or the encourager of whatever crop it is that we're growing. Now, malting barley is an interesting example where that's probably not the case. But everything else has been incentivised towards commodity crops um, where the, the, there's no value, there's no intellectual property, there's no brand there's no real competitive advantage to growing no. that product because we haven't needed one. We've had this huge cushion yeah. of the common agricultural yeah, the, policy. The, it's the worst thing that, that's happened to, yeah. to, 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 to diversification in farming. You, you, know, you know a lot about diversification in farming because you came back to the family farm having got a career elsewhere and you actually set about making a dairy into a brand 
and then started creating products within that. I mean, talk a little bit about that, please. So it was, you know, it was a family enterprise. We had the people on farm who were passionate about taking the, the future of the dairy business forward. Um, and I looked at all of the different options when I was doing a, a, a master's degree back in the early 2000s. And investing in creating that brand, that idea of, um, of a family business brand to um, take a proportion of what we were producing and selling it direct to people. We weren't innovators in that, but we were um, trying to do it in a way that made sense to our place where we were in Norfolk and who we could be to the local community. So um, it's only when you leave Norfolk do you realise quite how those different food communities aren't there or don't work? And, you know, I'm now working at Savills. I'm living for part of the week in London. And and you realise there are 7 million people there who ate three meals a day plus snacks. And they're all being fed from somebody somewhere. Um, And um, the the, the effort that it takes to, to build a brand, to build something that means something to people... Uh, is unbelievably complicated uh, and takes a huge amount of hard work. I've seen I've seen you in the local budgeons, uh, you know, with with your white hat on, saying, "Try some of my cheese." And I remember you doing it. I'm thinking, "Wow, that's that's balls!" Is one thing creating a brand, but the reality of doing that is you've got to get out there. And uh, you did it. I mean, you really, from a distance, you could see you appearing on whatever uh, whatever way you could to promote that brand. It was simply a small dairy. Any dairy could have done what you did. But you did it, and you created something that's in the shops with your name on it, your family's name on it, that you invented cheeses, you did yogurts, and that was amazing. But it must have been such hard work. It was hard work for everybody because actually I used to quip this all the time at the talks that I was doing, that the fact that I was there doing the talk, um, I, I was working the least hard because everybody else back at home was getting up, uh, well, I mean, robotic milking, so getting up slightly later than they used to, but still getting up every morning in order to feed the livestock, in order to clean it all down, in order to make sure it was working, operate the pasteuriser, move the milk from one place to another, is is just the, the level of effort that everybody put into it. Mm. Um, you know, and, I'm, and for a while I, I did front that, and um, it was a joy to be able to sort of celebrate everything in order to increase its profile increase the presence and and people thinking about what we were trying to do and and therefore hopefully buy what we were doing um but the 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 difficulty you know people are so embedded in in what they like to eat so trying to interrupt that process of like going i'm going to go to the supermarket and i'm going to buy some bread and i need to get two pints of milk and oh look that's on offer oh i'll get that to going oh what's that product Oh, that's from a local dairy farm. Oh, they look after their cows. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll get that. Mm, yeah, it's, you know, a pound more than more expensive. But, you know, the, the effort it takes, you know, to, 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 to kind of have those touching points with people, to have that interrupt their brains, it becomes familiar. And, and then when it's familiar, they are more willing to buy it. So, let's, so the battleground is exactly that, isn't it? You're not, you can't rely on the government. They are going to try and get as cheap a food as they possibly can because it will keep them in government the battleground for farmers is exactly branding or fighting for a realization of their best product how can we make value added stick to it i would be really interested in the future to see um how whether need forces us to collaborate more 
So um, I'm, I'm looking at the moment, Andrew, other than at you, out of your window at a silo. That's more uh, interesting. And, 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 a, and a, a silo is the ultimate metaphor for how um, farmers in this industry like to operate. You know, we like to be within our little column of expertise. We like to be within control of what's within our field boundaries. And, um, you know, we're, we're all fighting against each other and we've got walls up around what we're doing. And the... The best businesses, the, the most secure um, business models are the ones where you're contributing back to a central pot to be able to invest in those things that will, will make a difference. And you, you can't do that. You know, I, I don't think a future where, where one central manager is making, con, you know, controlling ever and ever and ever bigger hectares of land and is therefore able to make those decisions is the right or a desirable outcome I would be particularly interested to see if we can maintain that diversity of ownership, of influence, of thought within the industry, but learn to collaborate more. And I think there are some interesting things that could be done, particularly with tax. Um, that at the moment, we, we again, we're incentivized to think as single units. But actually, if, if there was, for example, some bigger incentive to pool together our resources and our entrepreneurial spirit mm -hmm. in order to create marketing advantage, in order to create yeah, no, um, R&D. I think that could be quite interesting. The, the, the silo you're looking at is actually a farmer's cooperative silo. So there is a group of farmers who many years ago collect, put some money together to create a place that gained them a, a premium for their product. It's a, it's a success story. It's a pr profitable business. Um, and it is a collective farmers that have done something together. The unfortunate truth is, up in the last 30 years, there hasn't really been a need because of the, the comfort blanket that you've described. I, th I think that there will be big individual units with very important managers who make big decisions about the collective feed wheat production and where that grain goes to. But there's lots of other niche opportunities within it. There is a need for 14 million tonnes of wheat to be produced in this country. And you can't break that down into lots of individual, I want a special premium for it. So let's focus on the dynamic of when it's sold as a group of people. I think, I think the opportunity, I agree 100%, the opportunity is collaboration between farmers and collectively recognise that they need to stand together on some of these issues that are coming up. Um, absolutely. Uh, we know now the next 10 years is going to be this major period of transition where, as an industry, we're all going to be looking at who's the next generation, what's happening, how are we doing this? And therefore, I think anybody who's got a long-term interest in the industry needs to facilitate a conversation with the next generation because it's going to be the desires and the abilities and the preferences of the next generation who will be influencing how those businesses work for the future okay. to an extent how does government policy influence that but we we pretty much know that i think that the government wants to leave farming to, to farm uh, and you know this whole idea of public goods and natural capital all these things around the edges you know that's what the government's going to be interested in but but how, how businesses survive how they operate and what those influences will be in the future um i don't i've got this sense of a revolution coming i i, I accept that i think i think the battleground is is for the the younger generation in the in the big metropolises, and I think the farming industry needs to have a game plan. So you're right that 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 generation need to get a clear picture of how they're going to be stronger, either collectively or or I don't know. They they need to see the social media side of things as their 
useful tool as opposed to just something they watch some crazy you know instagram thing every every they need to actually go we need to get a message out here consistently amongst all of the all of the young generation of farmers this message about food production needs to get to the general public doesn't mm. it they need to connect those two together so the tool is there to be used it just needs to be collectively somehow a, a stronger and stronger message all the time about food production is good um, well, you will ask any, um, I'll go through any Instagram feed or um, any um, uh, Snapchat feed or, or whatever, you know, you will find any number of photos of food mm. uh, and younger generations uh, who may not be able to afford to get on the housing market. Uh, they don't necessarily have a job for life anymore. They may be changing career every couple of years. Uh, they identify um, themselves and their peer groups, um, their values through food. And if that's not an opportunity for us as an industry to say, well, what, what the hell are we producing and for who? Uh, and, and rather than, you know, well, everybody should care about the production of feed wheat that goes into a chicken. Why? You know, we've already lost that argument because there's no value added there. Um, you, it's just the use of a hectare for something. And, and, and that's the best use of that hectare. It's, it's almost without thought um, and certainly without any idea of the end consumer and what they really want mm. from that. Um, and so this idea, you know, it's sort of the Norfolk Four course rotation gone crazy. We're all on this kind of spinning wheel where we have to plant something. So what are we going to plant? And we're going to plant that. Well, that's all right, because that can go into a chicken. Um, you know, and that, you know, that might be all right. That'll go there. You know, that'll get made into sugar, which we're not supposed to have any of. <laughs> you know, and it, it, you can see, well, hang on a minute. Who, where this revolution has to come from somewhere. You know, what yeah. are we growing for who and, and how? Uh, and and uh, well, that's some big questions but, there. But but you then get, you know, someone saying, right, we're going to do this. Oh, what a good idea. So, you know, 70% of the farmers go off in one direction. And the other 30% think, ha ha, I'll now plant more of the other stuff and get more because no one else is growing it anymore. And that is, is a dynamic that within farming that isn't palatable to lots of farmers, but they do undermine each other. Um, because we're all trying to grow the same crop in in the same way and not necessarily yeah. in in the right way, and so. But there's a thought that his mistake is my advantage, as the first point of call, and and it isn't how it should be. That's the thing you have got to break down. Do you know what? We've probably run over our time. I guess, you know, Emily, you are you are so so scarily intelligent. <laughs> I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on, coming on our podcast. Hopefully you'll catch up with the modern doing grand company with their podcast and do one yourself soon because you're, you, you're very good at asking questions on podcasts. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. Crush Foods produces a unique range of single-variety, cold-pressed rapeseed oils. All their seed is grown here in Norfolk. They only press a single variety for its taste, and they believe that this is what gives the oil the light, nutty flavour people like. Available in local shops across Norfolk, Suffolk and beyond. Visit crush-foods.com for more information. And now it's time for Farm Chat. Today I've got with me someone that winds me up quicker than anybody else on the planet. It's my younger brother, Charlie. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Andy. 
Well, we're here today uh, to discuss something that's very, very important to the two of us, and that's the, the right football club to follow. Would you like to introduce the team you support, Charlie? Uh, East Anglia's finest team, the Mighty Canaries. And which team do I support, Charlie? Well, in recent years, you've endeavoured to find the true faith, but if, <laughs> if we go back to the, the 1970s when we were growing up in this, which is, as we know, border country, but right side of the border, um, you were a binner. A binner? What's a binner? Ipswich Town fan. I believe it derives from an episode of Lovejoy back in the day where a key character, being a bin man, spent the whole episode <laughs> wearing an Ipswich Town hat. Obviously, I was, uh, I was an Ipswich Town fan, but not, not through my own fault. My, my mother bought um, two shirts for, my, for myself and my elder brother, and one was yellow and green and one was blue and white. And uh, my elder brother, obviously, first choice golden child, took the yellow and green shirt, never really gave much of a damn about football, and uh, I got the blue one and said, Dad, who, who, who plays in blue? And to his, his ever, well, his deepest regret, he said Ipswich Town, and that became the team I supported as a child. I did, however, go most Saturdays to watch Norwich City because he wouldn't take me to go and see Ipswich except for once a year. So I saw many more Norwich City games and was happy when they won. So it kind of developed this ability to support both teams, which some people haven't actually evolved to, have they, Charlie? Happy to watch Norwich win. Who are you trying to kid? <laughs> I you, am. Back in the day, you hid that very well. <laughs> yeah, okay, back in the day, but I was still going. I went to their first ever first division game against Everton. Jimmy Bone scored. I cheered and meant it. Television moments I've enjoyed over the years, uh, been related ones, predominantly in in the days of uh, sort of George Burley when they would lose every year in the playoff semi finals. <laughs> And Sky would have extended footage of, of Binner fans weeping in the stands at their failure to get out of, I guess it was Division 1 in, in, in those days, failing yet again to get out of the division. Now, now that Ipswich are floundering at the bottom of, uh, of Division 1 and Norwich have suddenly had four victories on the trot, what do you think about that? Are you enjoying that? Relegation for a club would never be so richly deserved. I mean, there is a bit of an issue within the 70s and 80s. There was this thing about Ipswich actually you know, finishing in the top three about seven years out of ten, beating all the top sides, winning the FA Cup, winning the UEFA Cup. In that period, Norwich didn't cover themselves in glory, did they? It's good to see you're showing your true <laughs> bin colours. Um, invariably, when talking to a binner, they will leap back to ancient history and, and go over those those things. Yes, it was <laughs> difficult growing up in the 70s with a Ipswich-supporting brother when Norwich weren't particularly good. But thankfully, the tables are very much turned these days. Ipswich heading to League One would, um, would make it a very good season, I feel. There is an expectation, isn't there, of... There used to be an expectation of Ipswich fans expecting to go up every year. And I think that's changed now. I think, that, I think last year when they played in the derby, there was a a clap on the 20th minute or the 18th minute, whatever it was, to celebrate Ipswich's 18 years in the championship. Whereas, you know, the Norwich, I think the tables are turned a little bit amongst the people I sit with. Because I am now a season ticket holder at Norwich City Football Club. I do that. And I maintain a lot of people in the last two or three years have, have gone to watch the football in order to make their lives seem better. Because in in fact, the, the the rubbish that's been shoved in front of us from a um, pass it sideways and never go forward perspective is so much more miserable than, than your life is. So people go there and they, and they come back uplifted thinking, ah, the rest of the week's here. So how do you see this season going? I think Norwich 
mid-table might sneak into the playoffs. Ideally, the binners will stick with Paul Hurst and get that <laughs> much-deserved relegation. Marcus Evans will lose interest, stop putting any money in, and they will drop out of the Football League in a couple of years. We could never play you again. It, it could be that if you don't beat us at Carrow Road this, this season... Um, that, yeah, that might might be your last chance until you meet us in the, the League Cup or the FA Cup or something. Anyway, so Norwich are going to possibly get in the playoffs and yep. Ipswich are going to get relegated and yeah. never to Fingers play Norwich. Fingers crossed. <laughs> right, anyway, Charlie, thank you very much for showing me your true yellow and green colours and uh, and I, I know I'll never convince you that I do care about Norwich but, you know, I've got my dad's old season ticket and uh, it's kind of, I'm keeping it just in case he ever wants to go again which unfortunately he probably won't but... I must admit, this afternoon I'm going to see the Canaries and I'm expecting them to win 1-0. Fair assessment? I'm hoping so too. And this afternoon I will also be cheering on the Blues. Come on, Birmingham. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewinggrain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.